when a student takes a course in basic Bible study methods in either Bible college or seminary, they typically learn three steps that are essential to doing competent Bible study. The three steps are presented this way, observation, interpretation, application. Observation, interpretation, application. And those steps must be in that order. If you get them backwards, you're going to be messed up. Observation, interpretation, application. First, one must carefully observe the text. Carefully observe the text. Obviously, the more training that one has, the better the observation will be. One who's graduated seminary with a knowledge of the original languages, an understanding of how to analyze a book in order to determine what a message statement is, and a thorough background in the history of the Bible and the history of the Bible customs and methods, they'll be in a better position to make a careful observation of the passage. A seminary degree doesn't guarantee competence in this area, believe me, but it is a serious advantage. Once we understand what the text is saying, after we observe what's in the text, once we understand what it is saying, the next step is to determine what it means. This is called interpretation, also hermeneutics, the science of hermeneutics. And the goal of interpretation, the goal of the second step, is to determine the author's intended meaning as it is expressed in the text. We can't determine the intended meaning until we understand what's expressed in the text. The postmodernist skips this step and moves to the next step, which is, what does the text mean to me? Which is a perfectly legitimate question, but it needs to be in its proper order. What does it need to me has to come after we understand what it means. And the final step is to determine how the passage should be applied. Here's where the what does it mean to me question comes in. The key to all of this is to understand it in its proper order. We first observe the text, then we interpret the text, and then we apply the text. Then we get to the what does it mean to me part. I'll never forget one of the courses I had when I was doing undergraduate work in University of Southwest Louisiana. The professor was just a few years older than the rest of us. She was a real sweet, pretty lady. And we were studying Shakespeare. And, and that was at the time, in the mid-70s, where everybody's opinion counted as much as everybody else's. And she, we sat in a circle, and every day, we would, every day we met for that class, we would be called upon to tell the rest of the group what that passage in Shakespeare meant to us. Not what did it mean. There's no observation. We didn't have to validate our view at all, but just what did it mean to me? And I had a lot of fun with that, but she can never say, she, she can never say that my view was wrong, because it's not wrong if it's what it means to me. The problem is skipping that middle step of what did Shakespeare mean? Then how am I going to appreciate it and, and be changed by it, perhaps? Well, if it's true in Shakespeare, certainly it's true in biblical study. Over the last 2,000 years of church history, the presentation of careless Bible study has done massive harm to the body of Christ, calls for application based upon faulty interpretation that was a result of sloppy observation lead Christians to being tossed to and fro by every wind that comes along and spending the majority of their lives in spiritual immaturity rather than growing into maturity. As you might have guessed by this introduction, our passage this morning is one of those passages of Scripture 
that has been a source of a lot of sloppy Bible study and hence much confusion about how it is to be applied. Read along with me our passage for this morning. It comes in, we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In many ways, the church at Corinth was a poster child for what a messed up church would look like. We've already seen that they had a problem with pride, and they were not nearly as spiritual as they thought they were. There was a serious lack of unity within the church. They were incorporating far too much of the secular Corinthian culture into the practices of the local church. They had a case of gross immorality in the church, and they were doing nothing about it. They were, there were individuals in the church, local church at Corinth, they were suing each other, creating a terrible public testimony. There were individuals that were frequenting prostitutes in the church. And as we'll see this morning, their view of marriage, particularly physical intimacy in marriage, was severely skewed. To their credit, they had written the Apostle Paul for clarification on several of the issues, several of the problems that they were having, and Paul responded to their questions. So in verse 1 reads, concerning the things that you wrote, he's referring to a letter that they had sent him while he's in Ephesus, asking for answers to these problems that they were having in the church. Before getting into the specifics of the situation in Corinth concerning marital intimacy, it would be very helpful, I think, to have a general idea of what marriage looked like in the Greco-Roman society, because it was different from what it looks like today. In the Greco-Roman society of the first century, marriages were typically arranged, and they involved very little personal choice on the part of the couple getting married. For the most part, marriage in the Greco-Roman society in the first century was all about the husband. The phrase, buying a wife, was very common at the time. Wives were often treated as objects to be used at the whim of a husband. Many marriages in the first century Greco-Roman culture were between Older men and younger women. The public image of marriage was often much more important than its private practice or its private function. Marriages were, according to the ancient historian Tacitus, and I quote him, a source of social distinction 
and an aid to advancement. I know some of these things still happen today, but they're not the general rule. Hopefully the general rule today, especially among Christians, is different from what I'm mentioning about the culture. The things that I just told you are not biblical mandates. That's what what the culture held true. So you can see why some in the culture, not just in Corinth but in other places, would have been a little bit shocked when Paul talks about a marriage situation that's between two equal partners. One may have a leadership responsibility, but that both husband and wife are created in the image of God. That was not in the Corinthian mindset. That's something quite different. So we must understand that Paul is writing in this context, in an ancient context, not in the context of our day. Having said that, the principles that he teaches will hold true, of course. But it always helps to understand context when we're attempting to make observations and then the proper interpretation and then the appropriate application. So it's in this context that the Corinthians write to Paul, and I'm going to quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman in their quest for clarification. Most of your Bibles won't have the proper punctuation in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The traditional view has been, at least in the past, that it is good for a man not to touch a woman is what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul is saying. That's what they had written to Paul. So what Paul is saying here is, now concerning the things about which you wrote, comma, quotation mark, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, in quotation mark, that's what he's going to discuss. He's going to discuss that faulty principle. That was the Corinthian view, at least the view among some of the Corinthians. And in there's a specific context here. This is not a man touching any woman. This is a man touching his wife. And the, the way that this is phrased by Paul, the, the idea of touching, does refer to sexual intimacy in marriage. So we're all on the same page. Paul will provide them with clarification to their question modestly but candidly. And that's my goal here this morning as well, to speak modestly about this subject, but at the same time speaking as candidly as I need to in order to explain to you what the Word of God says on this issue. Not what I'm saying on the issue, or not what some knucklehead north in North Texas who sticks a bed on top of the church to preach this passage says about this issue. What the Word of God says. And we ought not to shy away from issues that are in the Word of God because it might offend our modesty. What I'm going to do today, and a matter of fact, I warned the guys at the prayer meeting yesterday, today's message might be a bit R-rated. That's why we have in the bulletin, children's church meets simultaneously with the adult worship service. We encourage parents to utilize this wonderful ministry where children receive exciting biblical instruction at a level they can understand. Also, because we're going to come up from time to time with subjects like this. Very adult subjects. But I'm going to teach them to you. Modestly, but candidly. Almost all New Testament commentators agree that there should be quotation marks around the phrase, it is good for a, woman not to, for a man not to touch a woman. Or this is the view of the Corinthian congregation. 
or at least some people in the Corinthian congregation. Surely not all the Corinthian congregation, because we know that some of them were cavorting with prostitutes. So we know some of them didn't mind this. But this is talking about within the scope of marriage. They say, within the scope of marriage, the idea being that sexual intimacy within a marriage is for the purpose of procreation only. That's really how it's come down to us. Perhaps you've heard pastors preach that. And they've used this passage, this very passage, to do so, and they have grossly misunderstood the passage, and they're grossly misapplying the passage with great harm to the people that listen to them. The question that they're really asking Paul, and that he's answering here, is, is it okay for one party in a marriage to refuse intimacy to another party? In the marriage. Is that okay? And again, keep in mind that the questions certainly had cultural overtones. Because in that culture, I told you a minute ago, there's a wide disparity, oftentimes, between the age of the husband and the age of the wife. But not just that. In that culture, in the first century Greco-Roman culture, much of the time, wives were kept at home in the family compound, at least those that had any financial means at all that had a family compound. The wife stayed at home. The husband worked and then came back home, typically ate dinner with his family, and then went out for the night. Many nights a week would go out for the night. That's where he would meet his girlfriend. And he would take his girlfriend to parties that were called symposium. And at those parties, there would be vivid and stimulating intellectual conversation And then that Greco-Roman husband would share intimacy with the person that he took to the party. While the wife stayed at home and took care of the kids and managed the household. Frank Holt, ancient historian at the University of Houston. Alex and I were in his class together about 20 plus years ago. He's perhaps the best lecturer that I've ever sat under. Explain these principles. That women were not well thought of in this time in the first century. And they didn't leave the compound, usually not even to go shopping. One of the family slaves would leave to go shopping. And then the husbands would go out and do whatever they wanted to do. You see what I said a minute ago, that marriage in the first century Greco-Roman culture was all about the man, not about the woman. Now, this is not Bible. This is the Greco-Roman culture. But that's the culture that the Corinthians are living in. So you can see why maybe some in the Corinthian church might have that question. Perhaps the question came from some of the women in the church, that say, well, my husband doesn't have any relationship with me at all except to procreate. Then he goes out and does these other things for sexual pleasure. Again, Paul's going to provide some answers here modestly, but he is going to speak to this issue right up front. We recoil at this arrangement. I hope we do. I hope nobody's saying in that. We recoil at this kind of arrangement. The Greeks didn't have the idea that men and women both were created in the image of God as equal partners. They didn't have that idea at all. So is it okay for a man or a woman in the Greco-Roman culture or in our day? Because this is the word of God that has come down to us. We need to understand it within this culture, but we need to uh, interpret and apply it, interpret and apply it in our day. Is it okay for a man or a woman in marriage... To refuse sexual intimacy with their spouse. The, question, or the answer to the question comes in verses 2 and 3. But because of immoralities, 
let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Remember our study from last week, that word own in there. The wives were to submit themselves to their own husbands, not women to men in general, but within the family unit to their own husbands. And then husbands were to love their wives like they love their own bodies, their own wives. This is family unit stuff. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to the husband. Paul is by no means implying that sexual intimacy is all there is to marriage. But physical intimacy is a part of it. To have one's own wife is another euphemism for sexual intimacy that Paul's using. Again, I, so I want to show you he's using modesty, but he is being candid. Paul's saying that this is a very unhealthy arrangement that you're asking me about. For one party in marriage not to, to use his terms, fulfill the duty to the other party in marriage, leaves the couple susceptible to, to functions within immorality. And it only makes sense. Over the course of time, some Christians have developed a very, very unbiblical view of sex within marriage. It's clear, and I hope we all agree, that sex outside of marriage is wrong. But some, both in Paul's day in Corinth and in our day today, have concluded that sex inside of marriage is wrong, except for the purposes of procreation. Procreation, not recreation. And they get that, by and large, from a sloppy handling of this passage. Again, that's why I started by saying, if we're going to pick up the Word of God and present it to someone else and say, thus says the Lord, whether it's in a, from a pulpit or whether it's in a home Bible study, you better darn well know what the Lord is saying. That's why James says, let not many of you become teachers, for as such you'll incur a stricter judgment. If you teach it wrong, wrongly, then there are going to be a lot of wrong applications, and people are going to be messed up. Sloppy observation led them not to recognize that Paul is not saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He didn't say that. If he would have, he would have contradicted himself in the very next verse. That's why some people have a problem with this passage. What is he doing? He seems to be contradicting himself. Well, if you studied it carefully, you would know that's not what he's saying. That's what they were saying. I know of one extremely well-known theologian that holds that view. That sex and marriage is strictly for procreation. His marriage was a disaster. His books are quite good. But his marriage was not. Everybody has flaws in their understanding of certain passages of Scripture. And he was out there all by himself on that. i never forget what Lewis Berry Chafer said in the introduction to his seven-volume series on systematic theology. He said, if you find yourself holding a view that is at odds with everybody else, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. But 
It means you're probably wrong. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit working through everybody else is working through everybody else as well. So he said you need to go back and reevaluate your view. And if you're still convinced, then go for it. But at least take a second look if you're out there all by yourself. And that doesn't matter who you are, what titles you have, or how many books you've written. That holds true. God made men and women with the desire for sexual intimacy. And that desire is to be fulfilled within marriage. That's the way God designed us. That's another thing Christians have a lot of hang-ups sometimes about. And I understand why we do, because Satan has done a wonderful job of perverting the whole idea of sexual intimacy in our culture. Incredible job of just total perversion. And sometimes Christians are revulsed, and then so we just throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And that's not right. We need to have a biblical view of this. And the biblical view is that God made us this way. And he made us with certain desires, at least most people. Now, there's going to be an exception, and Paul's going to talk about it in verse 7. And when God makes an exception, he takes care of you, believe me. But God made men and women this way. He designed it. So in a marriage, when one party arbitrarily withholds something that is perfectly normal from the other party in the marriage, please, I want to keep saying that, within the boundaries of this marriage, It's a disaster or a prescription for disaster. Bad things are going to happen. That's why Paul says in verse 2, but because of immoralities, you don't want to put yourself in that position. I knew a woman many years ago who came to me and bragged that she had not had sexual intimacy with her husband for over two years. Now, she gave me some of the reasons. They weren't, had nothing to do with health or anything like that. There were some problems within the, message, the marriage that neither one of them wanted to face or deal with. So she just stopped it for two years and came to me and bragged about it. And then a short time later, she came and had a second meeting with me. And she wanted to divorce her husband because she had caught her husband looking at pornography on the Internet. We talked about it for a little while, and we both acknowledged that looking at the pornography on the Internet was wrong. That was sinful. That needed to be dealt with. But then I asked her a question that I don't think she thought I would ask her. And after we were finished acknowledging that his behavior was wrong, I asked her, do you think that your behavior in any way contributed to his behavior? She said, what do you mean? I said, you know exactly what I mean. Do you think that your behavior, you bragged to me that you had not had relations for two full years, do you think that your behavior in any way motivated his behavior or that you're culpable in any way for his behavior? I'm glad that there was a desk between us because she wanted to jump over the desk and rip my throat out. But listen, the point is that I believe that she did have some culpability. Yes, he was wrong. Of course he was wrong. You don't need to argue against that. But this passage here would have been the answer for her. We talked about it. She didn't get it. The answer is not to withhold the sexual intimacy. You know what the answer would have been? To sit down and get the problem worked out. That's what the answer would have been. That would have been the mature Christian thing to do. Not to create a set of circumstances that was very likely to lead to some bad stuff. 
And again, I'm not excusing that husband. He doesn't excuse himself. That's not what I'm doing at all. And they don't go to our church, so don't try to figure out who, don't look around trying to figure out who it is. <laughs> this is a long time ago, in a universe far, far away. I would ne- By the way, I would never use an example from somebody within our own church about something like that. You don't know these people. But I thought the, the illustration fits perfectly. And Paul would say, yeah, you do bear a little bit of the responsibility. Maybe not all of it, but you certainly bear some of the responsibility. And then he explains further in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, once you decide to get into this union that we call marriage, you need to understand that. That you don't have the right just to say, this is my body, you have nothing to do with it. I know that's popular in our culture. Either husband or wife. There's a union, there's a partnership there. And it needs to be handled with tender care. With very tender care. And understanding that with with great privilege comes responsibility. And there are great responsibilities in marriage to handle verse 4 properly. And to to not ever abuse the situation. But that's what it says. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. All he's doing is saying there are certain responsibilities in marriage. Verse 5 tells us that some people are actually practicing this deprivation because he says stop doing it. He wouldn't have said stop doing it unless there were people that were doing it. So he says stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of control. There are going to be times, surely, when marital relations might be suspended for a, for a period of time that, that aren't necessarily for prayer. I want, to go, I want to cover those first. And certainly if somebody has a health condition, sometimes people are separated by distance. Sometimes, like the couple I mentioned to you, there's some fussing and fighting going along, but that needs to be taken care of. But that's not the, the point that Paul's making here. That's not the context in which he's speaking. He's speaking in a totally different context of people who weren't, were healthy, they were not separated by distance, and apparently they weren't really fighting, but still depriving themselves of one another. So in this verse, verse 5, Paul gives one exception. If both parties agree, this intimacy can be suspended for a time in order to devote that time to prayer. How long is this period of time, you ask? I would ask you, how long do you pray? (laughs) Probably not for two years. (laughs) If you do, and both parties agree, then more power to you. So he does give an exception to the standard, to the rule. And that's if both parties come together and say, listen, we've got something serious going on. Maybe it's in the family, maybe it's with a child, maybe it's with a national situation. This is a crisis prayer. This isn't normal daily prayers. This is a crisis prayer, and we want to devote ourselves to that. It's similar to the biblical idea of fasting. Sometimes people ask, what in the world is this whole thing with fasting? I pray, but some other churches talk about praying and fasting. 
Is that a biblical principle? Well, yes, it is, of course. But we need to understand what fasting is. Fasting is not necessarily a supercharger that makes the prayer get to heaven faster. Fasting is setting aside time that we would normally be doing something else, eating, watching a football game, going to the opera, whatever it may be. We set aside time that was devoted to something else and say, I'm not going to do that. Today, instead of going to lunch, I'm going to shut my door and I'm going to pray for these two hours or three hours or four hours, whatever profession you're in, <laughs> however long you take for lunch. And I'm going to devote that time, instead of having lunch, I'm going to devote it to prayer. Well, that's really the, the principle that Paul is talking about here. There are, there are times where we're going to set everything else aside in our lives and we're going to devote that time to prayer. And there's a reason. He goes back to what was mentioned in verse 2, because... When you come together again, you're going to keep Satan from driving a wedge between husband and wife in marriage. Satan would love nothing better than for husbands and wives to, to adopt what some were adopting in this original Greco-Roman culture. If Satan can destroy the family unit, any nation has a really tough time ahead. And since I'm not running for president, I can say this. I think Satan has been going after the United States for quite some time, particularly in the area of the family. The whole sexual revolution of the 60s we talked about some, a week or two ago, that was, I, believe that was, I do believe that was a direct satanic attack on the family. In some cultures, subcultures in the United States, dads are unknown both with regard to their presence and who they were in the first place. They're unknown. And we wonder why certain segments of the population have more crime issues and poverty issues than others. You want to keep your kids from crime? Have a good marriage. That's one of the first steps. You want to keep them out of poverty? Husbands and wives stay together. That's another step. Single moms have a very difficult time. But when Madonna's out there, singing about sex outside of marriage as if it's something extremely glamorous, or Lady Gaga, whoever it may be, making it seem like it's the most wonderful thing in the world, we need to look at that as an attack on the family by the enemy. That's what Paul is talking about here. You don't want a self-inflicted wound. We've got enough problems out there coming from the outside in. Let's don't inflict a wound on ourselves from the inside out when it can be avoided. Verse 6 was, is also one of those verses that's tough for people to grasp because he says, I say this by way of concession, not of command. The question is, is Paul talking about what he just mentioned in verse 5 or is he talking about the whole paragraph? He's talking about what he just mentioned in verse 5. He's not commanding them to suspend their physical intimacy. He's conceding that if both parties agree if the suspension is temporary, and if the time is used for prayer, then it is acceptable. And again, this is crisis prayer, not daily prayer. That's why he says, I say this by way of concession, not of command. He's not commanding you to suspend marital relationships so you can have a prayer meeting this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, whatever it may be. He's not commanding that. He's just saying, it's okay if both parties agree. If the suspension is temporary, and if the time is used for prayer. Those three conditions. And then finally, in verse 7, 
he acknowledged that God does not have it in his plan for everyone to be married. When that's the case, there is a certain giftedness to handle the situation. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. When Paul says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am, at the time he writes this, he's single. Paul's marital status has long been a source of speculation among those who study these kinds of things. We can say for certain he's single at this time. But we also know that in order to be a Jewish rabbi, which Paul was, one had to be married. So it's highly unlikely that Paul was never married because he was a prominent Jewish rabbi. What happened to his wife? Books have been written, a lot of speculation, but we simply don't know. Did she die early on? It's possible. Did she leave him when he converted to Christianity? That's possible too. But we're left to wonder. I wouldn't put much stock in any text outside of the Bible that, pro- that proclaims one of two things. Who wrote, who's the human author of the book of Hebrews? <laughs> I was talking to some Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses came by my house one day, and somehow that came up. And they, they were very dogmatic about the author of the book of Hebrews, and we had quite an interesting conversation. But I wouldn't be dogmatic about who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know. And I wouldn't be dogmatic about what happened to Paul's wife if he did have one. Maybe there was some exception, and he was one Jewish rabbi that didn't have to be married, but that would have been difficult to believe. So we're left to wonder, we don't know. But Paul says here, I wish that all men, the implication is women too, were even as myself. He's going to talk about that later in the letter, why, more about why. But he's going to tell you this, and I know many people here today are in this particular situation, so I, I want to make sure we closed with this today. God ordained marriage. He invented it. And I've told you before, even as our time together started, that he also made us the way that we are, to desire this physical intimacy within marriage. But God did not ordain marriage for every single person, every individual. There are some for whom marriage is not God's plan. He'll talk about it later on. We'll get to it either next week or the next. There are some who have been married and are now widowed. And it may be God's plan for them to stay widowed. There are some people that have been married and are now divorced. And it may be God's plan for you to stay divorced. That's between you and God. This passage is not going to tell you which. Paul's going to give some suggestions. And he too has the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about that interesting language. But God does have it for some people not to be married. And if that's his plan for you, you can rest assured because God is a good God and gives good gifts to his children. And if his children, if his child asks him for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give that child a snake. That might be some human fathers that we read about in the Houston Chronicle from time to time. But that's not your heavenly father. Your heavenly father gives good gifts And if he has put you in a position where you're currently single, celibate, Paul's going to say there's no 
rush to get out of that situation that you're in. Stay there until it's completely clear that that's not the position that you're supposed to be in. And guess what? Here's a shocker. He's going to provide for your happiness and your contentment in that situation that you find yourself in. So you don't have to rationalize. You say, well, I was made this way. I know I'm not married, but I have these physical urges. I need to do something about it. No. You stay just like you are until he moves you into another position. And if you focus your attention daily, hour by hour, moment by moment, on your Savior, on your Creator, I promise you, you will enjoy the contentment that you so desperately seek. You don't have to be married to be contented. If he has you in a single position, you stay there until it's crystal clear that he wants something different for you. And he will make sure you live a fulfilled and contented life. In these verses, we learn that physical intimacy within marriage is a God-ordained event and should be suspended only when two parties have come together in agreement, when it is to be a temporary arrangement, and when that arrangement is for prayer. 